I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to Introvets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to Introvets Podcast. Greetings. Today, we have a case for you. Ooh. Now, typically, when we present a case on the podcast, I talk about how we are going to keep the identity concealed and do everything anonymously. And that is technically still true today. But there is one difference. This case that we're going to use as a base for today's episode was written up in a published case report. I'm going to provide the citation in the show notes as well as at the end of today's episode. With that said, JJ, yeah, take it away. Okay, so we have a nine-year-old neutered male Sheltie, uh, weighs about 10.4 kilograms, which is 22.8 pounds, and the Sheltie presented to his regular veterinarian after the owner witnessed the pet eating rat poison. Yes. That sucks. <laughs> Not good. That is uncool. Uh, do we know anything about what the pet ate specifically? Yes. Okay. Ate about four tablespoons of pelleted rodenticide, and the owner reports that the rodenticide contained bromethylene. Okay. So the owner said that they saw the dog eat the poison about 30 minutes ago. So bromethylene is a neurotoxin. It causes pretty severe neurologic signs in dogs and cats, including cerebral edema. Mm. And interestingly, the European Union banned bromethylene back in 2010. That's how shitty of a poison it is. Yet it's still okay here. Yeah, there is no antidote. So So how does bromethylene work? Okay, we are going to go over the kindergarten version of how it works, okay? That's my favorite. The first sentence I'm going to say does not sound like the kindergarten version, (laughs) but this is the overview, okay? So... Bromethylene uncouples oxidative phosphorylation in the mitochondria of the central nervous system and in the liver. Sounds bad. It is bad. It's bad. That's one of my bullet points. That's bad. (laughs) So this interferes with ATP production. And here's where I'm going to really water it down so that we don't get too far into the weeds with this explanation. (laughs) And just say that the brain won't have the energy it needs to power its transport pumps And this includes the pumps that uh, handle, like, electrolyte transition across cell membranes. JJ, don't look at me like that. Brain don't work good. (laughs) No, I was understanding. I was just thinking, that's not good. Yes, it's not good. That's going to... That's going to fuck with a lot of That's, things. It's, yes, it's not good. So the osmotic gradient goes to shit, and then that's why you get the brain swelling. Mm. That's mm. the baby step version. That's the, that's the toddler version of what we're dealing with here, okay? I could have read a lot of sentences with a lot of words, but that's just how we're going to understand it for now. Because that's what's important for, for this episode. No bueno. It's not like there's an antidote that we need to think about the pathophysiology for or anything because there's no flipping antidote joy it's that bad okay so anyway causes bad things Mm. how how much do the dogs have to get into before they get ill okay well so they do have to eat a relatively larger amount of this than the other uh, rodenticides on the market like anticoagulant rodenticides or colocalciferol but Death has been reported in dogs who ingest amounts as low as 0.95 milligrams per kilogram. So we're talking about 
death being a possibility at less than a milligram per kilogram of body weight, that's still not a lot. Mm. And clinical signs are reported to have developed in dogs who eat as little as 0.46 milligrams per kilogram. Now, because you do have to take in relatively larger amounts of this redenicide compared to some of the other ones, one positive, if we can have any silver lining, if we can have any silver linings at all about this, is that relay ingestion, meaning like getting sick from eating rodents that have eaten the poison, is not really an issue with this. Mm. Whereas we can maybe see that with the other ones. Mm Can and have. Right. So how long does it take for dogs to show clinical signs and how do they present? Clinical signs occur within hours to days of ingestion and it varies. Severity does depend on the dose ingested. Generally, clinical signs develop more quickly uh, with higher doses and those symptoms are more severe. So there's sort of two different syndromes that you can see with bromethylene ingestion. The first is seen with high dose exposure. So high dose is considered to be more than the LD50. LD50 is like the amount required for 50% of the patients to die, Mm -hmm. kind of morbid. So the LD50 has been reported to be as little as 2.38 milligrams per kilogram and as high as 5.6 milligrams per kilogram. When we're in that range and above, we see a convulsant form of illness and we're going to see signs like anorexia, hyperexcitability, circling, hyperthermia, which is elevated body temperature, hyperesthesia, which is pain, muscle tremors, and seizures. And generally, these signs begin anywhere from 2 to 12 hours following ingestion, and they virtually always result in really rapid deterioration and death. And then low-dose exposure causes a paralytic form of illness, and that usually happens within 12 to 24 hours. So we're going to see anorexia, ascending ataxia, posterior paresis or hind limb weakness, depressed spinal reflexes, muscle tremors, decreased mentation, vomiting, nystagmus, and anisocoria. Nystagmus is Exactly. JJ is making hand motions to be the eyeballs. Uh, Dystagmus is movement of the eyeballs uh, back and forth or up and down or sometimes in a rotary pattern. Or if anybody has ever watched Katie Holmes act, she does the eye dart back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Really? She got nystagmus. Does she have physiologic nystagmus? No, it's part of her acting stick. Okay. Yeah, it's just very noticeable when you first notice it. You know, some kitty cats have mm-hmm. a physiologic nystagmus, and that's where um, those cat cuckoo clocks came from. Oh, you know, love the cat those. where the eyes go back and forth. That's yes. kind of the inspiration. University anyway. Pickers has got a bunch of those, and oh, I want to go buy one. <laughs> okay. Okay. And then anisocoria is uneven pupil size. Mm-hmm. And this begins um, one to four days following ingestion. So essentially, like, one to four days after they eat it, they start to have these symptoms like within 12 to 24 hours of one another, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So the onset of symptoms can be delayed up to four days, but once they start, you tend to get all these symptoms in like a day period. And the symptoms progress over one to two weeks to include head pressing, paralysis, 
forelimb extensor rigidity. So the front legs are going to be out and like really rigid and stiff. And then seizures and the coma. Mm, none of that is none of that is good. No, all of that is bad. Hmm. So, well, normally we would go through a differential diagnosis, but in this case, we know the pet ate rat poison. Yep. Uh, so we're going to jump to what we do when an owner brings in a dog who has eaten rat poison and they know about it. So number one is going to be to find out what type of rat poison. In this case, the owner reports that it was bromethylene. Now we know from the case report that the owner didn't have any packaging that stated ingredients, just the bait itself and the tray. Hmm. This seems to be like a pretty good time for me to point out that you cannot tell what the active ingredient in rat poison is by its color or appearance. Mm. And you also cannot tell by the brand name, as each brand name makes baits using a variety of ingredients. Of course they do. Sometimes I have to get very creative to 100% confirm what type of rat poison the pet ingested. One time I even had the owner call the pest control company that put it out. And I'm just going to go off on a little side vent for just a second about this. Because this love was these. a ER case that I saw. Okay. So it's like Sunday. Okay. Mm-hmm. The uh, owner comes in and is like, hey, my dog ate this. I'm sure it's fine. Because they told me that, you know, they only put out all natural ingredients and nothing that would hurt dogs. But I just wanted to double check and I look and it's a rat bait station. And I'm like, the dog has ripped the whole thing apart and has eaten every bit of the bait inside, which was like two really large blocks. And I'm like, okay, there is no rat poison that is safe for dogs. And they're like, no, no, no. Our our person said for sure that dogs were not going to be harmed by this. And I'm like. They lying. They are ultra lying about it. They, this is it. How would poison kill a rat and not a dog? (laughs) And when I say that, then people are like, hmm, good point. I'm like, yeah, I know it's a good point. So anyway, nothing was stamped on anything. I couldn't find anything on the station that they brought in or anything like that. So I was like, call the company. So they called the company. And of course, it's a Sunday. And I'm like, well, we have to know. You know, we have to know. And I was like, I would call them and just harass them. If they got an emergency phone number, you need to call it. It's an emergency. This is like the definition of an emergency. Mm-hmm. So they called the emergency phone number and like we did a bunch of rigmarole. I, I would say six hours later, we finally had the answer. But it took like the person on call calling the receptionist and looking up the account and then getting the drug name and then having to call the owner who was like in church. Like it was a whole thing. And uh, anyway, long story short, it was a vitamin K antagonist, Um, but it allowed me to treat the dog because I was sitting there telling them, here are all the types of rat poison. We don't know what your pet got into. I can make them vomit. But then the thing that we do. Depends entirely on what it is, you know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, if you were listening to this and you're, you know, whoever you're hired for pet control or (laughs) not pet control, whoever you're hired for pest control is telling you that rat poison stations with bait in them are completely safe for animals. They don't know what they're talking about. And you need to be like, no, do not put rat poison on my property. Mm -hmm. Do not do it. Find another pest control company. Exactly. Anyway, sorry. So back back around. <laughs> um, rat poison will always harm dogs and cats if they eat it. End of story, period. Nothing kills a rat that wouldn't also kill a dog and cat. I mean, come on. All right. Anyway, the next thing that you do 
uh, in a known ingestion like this one, and when it's recent, so, you know, it's not been very long, is uh, decontamination. So, Ralph, right, I would induce vomiting, and you got a few ways to do that. Apomorphine IV is my most favorite, and let me tell you, once you start this, you will never go to anything else ever. Um, I've messed around with apomorphine, the tablets that you dissolve and put in the conjunctival sac. Oh, yeah. It's a pain in the ass. The dogs hate it. Sometimes they get a corneal ulcer from it. They just get drowsy. I would say 50% of the time they don't even vomit. Like, mm-hmm. it's just a pain in the ass for everyone. we got to get them compounded like that. You know, yeah. just order the damn injectable. Mm-hmm. It's not expensive. Hydrogen peroxide um, carries risks. I don't use it. Uh, with hydrogen peroxide administration, you might be successful with getting them to vomit, but it carries the risk of esophagitis, which is inflammation of the esophagus, hemorrhagic gastritis, so bleeding and ir- irritation of the stomach, and then ear embolism. Now, those are not common, but they can be very devastating when they occur. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I don't recommend hydrogen peroxide. So, is it, for some reason, this is sticking out in my brain, is it accurate that cats run more a higher risk of esophagitis than dogs do? Um, I have heard that, and I've heard that they have a higher risk of ear embolism with peroxide compared to dogs, uh, but I did not run across like a statistic when I was doing the literature review for mm-hmm. this episode. So that would be something that I would say is, like, we're, we're not presenting it as a fact, but I have heard that. It's I would say around. anecdotally. Okay. Anecdotally, I agree that that has been mentioned to me in the past. Okay. But I don't have a source. Uh, if I were to see this patient, I would induce vomiting with apomorphine and I would give it IV. Because it works like a charm. Mm-hmm. Follow up with some serenia. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff. They have a good nap. So what happened in this patient? So vomiting was induced and a large amount of bait was recovered. We don't know the method of induction of vomiting in this case, but it was successful. Okay. Cool. And then with bromethylene in particular, I think about giving activated charcoal. Mm-hmm. Um, for bromethylene, you do want to use one with a cathartic. But I read at least one source that said to avoid magnesium-based cathartics. They did not say why. It just said avoid that with bromethylene. Interesting. Um, and this part is kind of confusing because the doses of activated charcoal that are published vary kind of wildly. Mm-hmm. And I would then say, of course, it varies depending on the product and like the concentration and things like that. Uh, there are several of them on the market. Some say to use charcoal with the cathartic once and to follow up with regular activated charcoal and to absolutely not under any circumstances give multiple doses of one with the cathartic. And then some sources that I read said give multiple doses with the cathartic, and that's completely fine. I could not find a consensus statement on that. For bromethylene specifically, some sources recommended several days of active charcoal administration because bromethylene undergoes enterohepatic recycling. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, the drug kind of gets continually remetabolized and then can continue to be eff- effective, if that makes sense. So the um, liver says, let's have more. Sure. Well, and this particular compound, bromethylene, is broken down by the liver into an even more toxic metabolite, which is the one that does the most like neurotoxic damage. 
joy. So, um, I could not find a consensus about how much activated charcoal to use, whether to do a cathartic once or multiple times or anything like that. It just varies quite widely based on the source that you're referencing. Hmm. Yeah. Well, our patient did receive some activated charcoal, though we don't know the brand or the concentration. Okay. Um, got 200 mLs. Okay. And the patient was placed on lactated ringer's IV for supportive care. Okay. I mean, I think that's reasonable just off the top of my heading it, you know, depending on which type of activated charcoal we're talking about, like some of the more common brands for a dog this size, um, 200 mils doesn't sound like an insane amount to me. Mm-hmm. Like that sounds like in line with some of the more dilute preparations I've worked with. Hopefully not. Everybody got painted with it. Yeah, I'm sure they did though. Um <laughs> So, yeah, I think that's reasonable. And then IV fluids for supportive care, uh, reasonable. Uh, IV fluids are not going to, like, counteract the neurotoxin here, um, but they can just help support. And then we're providing some hydration since we gave the dog, you know, mm-hmm. um, activated charcoal. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I think that uh, was a good plan. So what happened next? I'm guessing there's going to be some sort of a monkey wrench thrown here into the case because <laughs> it was a case report that was written up. Mm-hmm. Okay. So about an hour after presentation, uh, the dog developed some generalized tremors. Um, he was referred to the ER for further care. Still tremoring at presentation to ER, we progressed to laterally recumbent and had altered mentation. Okay. Well, that's not great. So about an hour after the pet got to the regular vet, they'd already induced vomiting, but mm-hmm. now it's having tremors and other neurologic signs. By the time it gets to the ER, it is not doing good. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, What happened next? The clinical signs improved slightly with the continuation of IV fluid therapy and a dose of diazepam. Okay. Um, lab work showed an elevated sodium at 157 milliequivalents per liter. Normal is 142 to 150, and this is a mild elevation. All other values on the chemistry profile and the pet's acid-base status were within normal limits. Okay. So the question is, why is this dog getting worse? Vomiting was induced pretty quickly, mm-hmm. and a large amount was recovered. So did the poison just work that quickly, or is something else going on? Mm-hmm. When we talked earlier about, like, how quickly it it takes effect, it does say, like, hours to days. Yeah. You know, this owner got the dog in, like, pretty quickly. Um, it seems like not enough time has gone by for these really severe clinical signs and the i mean we got the dog to vomit most of it up yeah so that some you know that doesn't 100 percent make sense although bromethylene is a bad bad drug i mean it's stupid and so maybe um Mm. yeah so say the owner is maybe wrong about the timing or something like that and it is the bromethylene causing these symptoms. How else can it be treated? If it's bromethylene, uh, there are a few more things that can be done besides the decontamination and supportive IV fluids that the pet has already had. One would be intravenous lipid emulsion therapy. Um, and I used to worry about the cost with this 
But when I used it most recently, it was really not as bad on cost as I had imagined. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if the cost has come down or I have just gotten used to expensive <laughs> cases <laughs> working ER. I'm not sure. But it wasn't that bad the last time I looked it up. You've come immune to cupcakes. It's very possible. So bromethylene is a lipid-soluble chemical. Uh, it's hydrophobic. And so intravenous administration of lipid emulsion has a strong potential for effective toxin elimination. Uh, if you can't get an IV, you can also administer it intraosseously. And then even cases that are too far along for effective decontamination can still have intravenous lipid emulsion therapy. And we think that it probably helps. <laughs> and then supportive therapy, because as we talked about before, this is a stupid, dumb, dumb drug that does not have an antidote. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's no, like, medicine we can give that's going to be like, boom, magic medicine, you know. So supportive therapy, we try to control the seizures. So diazepam or phenobarbital would be the drugs of choice usually. And then excellent nursing care. Uh, we need to turn patients who can't move on their own to prevent corneal ulcers in dogs that can't blink well. Um IV fluid therapy, as we mentioned before, uh, does not in any way deactivate the neurotoxic effects, but providing hydration for these patients that um, are not eating or drinking on their own is important. And then as pets are recovering from bromethylene toxicosis, many of them remain anorectic for long periods of time. And uh, so we need to supplement feeding just as needed for the individual patient. We never want to force feed uh, or syringe water to a patient that doesn't have normal mentation because that's going to increase the risk of choking or aspiration. Yeah. So I'd be looking at a feeding tube for these guys. And then for those with suspected cerebral edema, you would consider mannitol or hypertonic saline to try to get some of that fluid off the brain. Uh, I read about this too, which I thought was interesting. You should avoid jugular sticks in any patient that you think has cerebral edema because they can increase the intracranial pressure. And then you can place the whole patient at a 30-degree incline to help with literal drainage of the fluid. From Put them in a distrainer. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and then um, lastly, I'm going to say maybe ginkgo biloba extract, because it has been experimentally shown to help in rats that are exposed to bromethylene. And there's a single case report of its use in a canine patient that survived. Now, it was not the only treatment administered. It was just part of the treatment um, regime for that dog, and that dog did make it. Hmm. Interesting. And if these ongoing neurological signs in this case are from bromethylene, what is the prognosis? So with bromethylene, the neurologic signs might uh, take days or even weeks to resolve. And permanent neurologic damage is also possible, so they might not ever fully recover. Severe neurologic signs like coma, seizures, and paralysis do warrant a grave prognosis. So this patient is tremoring and has altered mentation. Doesn't sound like he's fully in a coma yet, but if he progressed to that, we'd have to be telling the owners, like, this is not going to, you know, this is not looking good. Mm -hmm. Now, in one retrospective study of dogs that had ingested bromethylene, 97.4% survived. Um, but only 25 of those 192 dogs in the study had neurologic signs at presentation. 
So we've got like a super high survival rate from ingestion, but it's not like we're looking at a high percentage of those that had neurosigns. Like, so we, we don't fully know. I don't think the prognosis once neurosigns have developed. So what else could be causing these signs? Well, bromethylene does look like the most likely situation because we, you know, the owner saw the doggy, the rat poison, and it's a neurotoxin. Mm -hmm. Um, But, like, the timing is a little weird and, like, we've done appropriate treatment. Like, I don't know that I would expect the dog to get this severe, you know. so Yeah, that quickly. It's kind of weird. Um, But So what else could be happening? Uh, Literally anything else that can create neurologic signs. (laughs) So it's a very long list. Um, And then it would have to be something that coincidentally occurred at the time. Of bromethylene ingestion, which seems unlikely, but look, I have seen some weird crap in my days, so I'm going to say it's not technically impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the lab work shows a mild hypernatremia, so elevated sodium, and hypernatremia can create neurologic signs, but, I mean, these numbers are mild. Yeah. Like, it's not massively elevated, it's just mildly elevated. Um But there is one issue that we need to worry about, and that is that the patient has been given activated charcoal. Mm -hmm. And activated charcoal can cause hypernatremia, Uh and hypernatremia can cause neurologic signs. Hmm. So I think that we do need to think about the hypernatremia as a possibility. Yeah, it's very least monitor it. Yeah. What sorts of neurologic signs does hypernatremia cause? So mild hypernatremia, so mildly elevated sodium, might only create a pet that's extra thirsty, you know. Uh, But you can see lethargy, weakness, disorientation, muscle fasciculations, ataxia, behavioral changes, anorexia, decreased thirst, vomiting, increased thirst, or increased urination. If it's a little bit worse, they might get very dehydrated. They might get an elevated body temperature, tacky or pale mucous membranes, poor pulse quality, and elevated heart rate. And then seizures, coma, and death can occur in severe cases. So this pet's neurologic signs are severe, but the sodium is not massively elevated. Wouldn't we be able to rule out hypernatremia as a cause just from the fact that the sodium is not reading that high in this dog? Okay, so... No, (laughs) because the severity of signs with hypernatremia increases when the sodium has risen quickly. So patients with chronic progressive hypernatremia have milder clinical signs, and in patients where the sodium has risen very quickly have more severe clinical signs regardless of what the number is on the sheet of paper. Mm. And if the activated charcoal created sudden hypernatremia in this patient, we might see pretty severe neurologic signs, even if the sodium value itself is not that high. I'm reminded of our Addisonian dog episodes where we've talked about how correcting their low sodium too quickly can create neurosigns because it's a relative hypernatremia. Mm -hmm. And that reminds me of this. So you do have to be like, pretty careful about how you correct sodium. Mm -hmm. So it's not the number on the page, but the rate at which it is corrected that creates clinical signs in those Addisonian dogs. And so I see some carryover into this where it would be 
not the number on the page, but how quickly it went from normal to high that prompted the bad signs. So it's possible the clinical signs could be due to rapidly developing hypernatremia. What would we do about that? Okay, well, correction of the underlying issue. In this case, it would be don't give any more charcoal till we know more, <laughs> right? Like, uh, so that so that's easy to do. Um, and then fluid therapy is really the mainstay of treatment for hypernatremia. In short, you would replace any fluid deficits with isotonic fluids. Those are going to be our classic fluids that we think of, LRS, you know, Normar, things like that. So if you have a super hypovolemic patient, you do replace that fluid deficit with isotonic fluid. But once you correct for any hypovolemia, you would want to start a hypotonic fluid therapy next. And your fluid choice is going to depend on the osmolarity of the patient, which you probably cannot measure in private practice, <laughs> but can be measured like um, at the referral level, uh, the duration of the hypernatremia and how severe it is. So for acute hypernatremia, you can correct it quickly. But if it's chronic, that's when you want to tiptoe. You want to go more slowly because if you correct it too fast, that also can cause neuroscience. So sodium going up too fast or coming down too fast, neuroscience, no matter what. <laughs> sodium equals neuroscience. Everywhere. Everywhere. All the neuroscience. <laughs> uh, so this is where you're going to want to get your book out and do some calculations. You don't want to wing this. You want to follow the textbook and plug the numbers in and see. And so in any good emergency textbook and also on online resources like VIN, you're going to be able to find charts that show the sodium content of different types of fluids so that you can calculate. And it'll literally say, like, do not adjust the sodium more than X number of millimoles per liter per day. And so then you would have to just calculate what that is and then look at the weight of the dog and see what is, like, reasonable to replace at one time. You math. You math it. Absolutely. So if you wanted to know for sure if it's the rat poison or the hypernatremia causing the clinical signs, what would you do? Um... Or what could you do? Well, I think if we know that it's definitely bromethylene that the pet got into, then there's not really a way to tell for sure whether the bromethylene or the hypernatremia are causing some or all of the symptoms. Uh, but they at least don't have conflicting treatments. That's helpful. So it's not like the treatments are opposite of one another or something. Um, so I think it's probably a wait and see if the pet gets a better situation. I mean, I hate that. <laughs> Like, uh, unless you could rule out the bromethylene somehow. Can you test a patient for bromethylene exposure? Okay, well, I researched this a lot, and all I could find are post-mortem tests. So it apparently leaves very specific changes to the neurologic system that we can see on histopath. And I found one message board thread from 2017 uh, where someone was asking, like, can I perform some sort of tox screen that includes bromethylene? And at that time, the toxicologist replied and said that there was not an antemortem test. Um, and so I don't think that there is anything short of a necropsy that could tell us for sure. And obviously, we don't want to have to do a necropsy because we want the patient to live. So uh, basically, I don't think there's a way for us to test for it unless the patient dies. Mm. Rabies, too. Yeah. I mean, really just having the packaging is the most important thing when we're trying to figure out what type of rat poison we're dealing with, for sure. 
Well, they do have some of the packaging. There is an EPA number stamped on the bait tray. Okay. And when the EPA number was searched, the ER veterinarian discovered that the poison was not bromethalone. It was bromodialone, which is a vitamin K1 antagonist. Well, shit. Okay. Well, I mean, I mean, you also excitement. <laughs> <laughs> Both shit and excitement at the same time. So, okay, well, we can then rule out bromethalone as the cause for the neurologic signs <laughs> because it's not what they got into. Um, and I will say I have never heard of this EPA number stamped on the bait tray. So now I'm going to look for that from now on. Mm-hmm. Because once I read this, then I was like, holy crap. And so then I went and searched. And so any sort of product that has been registered with the EPA has their own number and it should be on the tray. And so then you just Google the number and it comes up. And I'm like, holy crap, how much time and effort would that have solved or saved for me over the years? <laughs> so oh, wow. now we know that if they don't have the package with the ingredients, if they brought the little tray or they still have the little tray, it should be stamped on there somewhere. So apparently y'all look at the tray. Bonus. Bonus. Okay. So now let's get back to the case. Mm-hmm. Okay, you may see seizures listed as a potential clinical sign of vitamin K1 antagonist rodenticides. Just as a brief review, those are the ones that make you bleed, okay? Uh, They interrupt the coagulation cascade. The treatment is give vitamin K, okay? Um, But these don't primarily cause neurologic signs. In the case of vitamin K1 antagonists, it is my understanding that the neurosigns that we see are primarily related to acute brain bleeds from the anticoagulant effects. It's not a neurotoxin like bromethylene. It's completely different. Just when you thought things were looking up. Well, additionally, it takes a while for vitamin K1 antagonists to start creating clinical signs of bleeding. Okay? Mm. Usually it's three to seven days. So, in my opinion, there is no way that a vitamin K1 antagonist could create these types of signs in this patient because we know that it was ingested today. If the vitamin K1 antagonist was going to cause the seizures that are listed in its profile, it would be many days after ingestion when there's already clotting abnormalities, and that is not the case. So... I feel like it's got to be the hypernatremia. Mm-hmm. So because the bromethylene exposure could be completely ruled out, the most likely explanation for the pet's clinical signs is hypernatremia that developed acutely as the result of activated charcoal administration. Shit. Mm. Though the exact dosing was unknown, analysis by the authors of the case report demonstrated that the dose given was most likely within the published dosing ranges for activated charcoal. We accidentally, <laughs> Oops. it looks like, created neurologic signs in our patient while trying to prevent it from having neurologic signs. Well, you know. With the activated charcoal. I was unaware of the dangers associated with active charcoal administration until this year. Like, yeah, literally. I hadn't heard about that um, either. Maybe an obscure thing that I've read at some point, you know, but like it was not something that when I encountered a case that needed activated charcoal, like I didn't significantly think about like, oh, no, we got to watch out for that. I was just like activated charcoal is going to be fine, you know, Um, but it's not. Activated charcoal isn't uh, necessarily a benign drug. Yeah, it's a Um, little scary when you have like a wide variety of dose recommendations. Yeah, there's no set dose. There's no set type. And apparently, 
There's some dogs that can have a shit ton of it and never have a problem. And other dogs that can have like a modest amount and have a major problem. Hmm. And so when I was doing some research into this after, you know, seeing what the answer was on this case, I kind of, you know, looked around and even like on the book chapters that I read about hypernatremia, none of them talk about activated charcoal. Um, On the activated charcoal, like formulary pages, it has like a minor like blurb, like, hey, it might cause hypernatremia. But But at no point is it like, take caution, here's what to do. And so then I went back and read multiple like message board posts just from different places and saw several cases where uh, the toxicologists that were consulted were like suspicious that the patient had died from the activated charcoal instead of whatever we were worried about. Mm. And so I don't have like a study or a concrete source to point to for this part of the information, but I'll tell you kind of what the consensus was or the the anecdotal information that I read was that it tends to happen more in smaller dogs versus big dogs. And it tends to happen at the upper end of the dosage range. And so the toxicologists that were talking about it were saying that they have started using like the very bottom of the dosing range, like the lowest dose possible. Um, and that they're very conservative with activated charcoal where they didn't necessarily used to be. Mm. So it's interesting. Food for thought. Yeah. So, um, what happened with this patient? IV fluid therapy with hypotonic fluids was started. Diazepam and methocarbamol were used to control tremors. Warm water enemas were administered. Hmm. And I'm guessing the warm water enemas are just to, like, try to help flush some of that, you know, charcoal on out. Uh, That's all I got. I'm not 100% sure (laughs) why why they did that. And it was not explained when I read the study that we're talking about Mm -hmm. or the case report. It was not explained fully when I read the case report that we were talking about. But I'm thinking they're trying to help evacuate that activated charcoal. Makes sense. Diazepam and methocarbamol, um, I think those are great. I'll say in my toxic tremor patients, I found methocarbamol to be much more effective. Um, but sometimes you got to use both. Yeah. Yeah. Not either or, but and. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> it's just one of those things. Did the sodium come down? Like what it what happened? So one hour after initial measurement, the sodium increased to 178. Okay. The sodium became too high to read oh. two hours after that. Oh, shit. Okay. So, of course, aggressive supportive care was continued. Okay. And 15 hours after presentation, the patient was discharged home with normal neurologic status and a sodium of 158. Okay. So, you can see <laughs> then when we got that single measurement, it was on its way up. Mm-hmm. It was on its way up. And so, and really, the dog left with the sodium a little higher than, right? Yeah. The, the sodium at leaving was higher than what it presented, but it's because it was headed up and then we got it down. Mm-hmm. So, okay. <laughs> well, that little dog is lucky. Yep. It escalated and de-escalated. It, it did. It did. Okay. So, uh, whoo, that, whoo, mm-hmm. that's interesting. Okay. Um, man, I'm glad I didn't have this case i would have been yeah that's a butthole pucker shitting myself yeah, exactly just <laughs> yeah. completely oh that's one where you just have like a you know that's a, the heart palpitations it's a bad day yeah bad day <laughs> i agree i agree look th- sometimes the things that we do to treat animals create more problems sometimes they do i mean that's just the fact of it mm-hmm. um 
you know, one way to completely prevent this issue would be to not have the dog eat rat poison in first. Don't use rat poison. All right. That's that's my takeaway. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't put rat poison out. Uh, but because even if we're doing absolutely by the book things, which this vet did, it looks like, um, you can still run into problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, are rats all that bad? <laughs> I mean, they're kind of cool. They're smart. Look, I actually like rats. I do, too. Um, I have had uh, the privilege of working on them as patients, you know, uh, you know, just a few, not a lot. But they're very smart and they're clean mm-hmm. and extremely affectionate. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I just think <sighs> they're not that bad. Look, I know we have an it's a as a society we have an agricultural history. We have leptospirosis. We've got we've got to protect our grain stores. Like I get it. Like I understand. But you're. I mean, I also look. They're cute. Okay. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mice are little assholes. You have to control your rodent populations. Let's do it without poison. Yeah. Please, if we can at all possible, do that. Okay. Get a pet hawk. <laughs> The pet hawk might try to eat your small dog, though. True. Okay. Never mind. Fair enough. Bad okay. idea. <laughs> Socialize the hawk to the dog so that just in, in only five easy steps, you two can have a mousing hawk. All right. Anyway. Then you have to buy mice to feed the hawk. See, this is just... Well, the reason I said that is... Capitalism. It all comes back to capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Okay. When Ben and I were on our honeymoon in, in London... Um, I forget where we were, but it may have been like when we were going to tour part of the um, palace or something. Or yeah. I don't know. There was a, a van where you can rent a bird of prey to take care of pests. What? Yeah. So this is a service yes. in England, apparently. Yes, well, apparently. look, they're ahead of us on banning bromethylene. So maybe this is their answer to the problem. I don't know. Maybe. You know, uh, I should have looked that up. That is a deficiency in my literature review, yep. is the hawk. And I think I have a picture control. of it. I'll have to okay. look and well, see. I, Show we need it. Yeah, we need to look <laughs> at that picture. Ooh, I just thought of something that's a good thing that we need to go over and tape everything. I'll tell you in a little bit. Okay, here we go. Surprise. Surprise ending. Okay, back to the story. Where were we at? Um, <laughs> what happened next, JJ? Yes. Okay, so the patient was discharged. Yep, and they sent the patient home on vitamin K for anticoagulant redenocide exposure. Okay, smart choice. That mm-hmm. is the antidote. Makes so sense. High, high, high level right there. Very good. So takeaways. Activated charcoal is not a benign drug. Sadly. Only use it when necessary. And then it, it look up the toxin to see if recommendations have changed. Because um, I make it a point, anytime I get one of these toxicities in where we know the thing, I always just take a second, sit down, pull out my textbook, pull up then, you know, do something. And I just read about it real quick. Like what has happened because information changes so rapidly now. Mm-hmm. And I'm starting to get older and the years tick by, you know, and so it's like you think, well, I, I looked that up real good a few years ago. And then you look and you're like, shit, it's been 10 years, actually, yep. since I looked it up real good and stuff changes. So anyway, mm-hmm. um, for some toxins, ASPCA poison control for pets is starting to recommend against activated charcoal, um, especially if there are no studies that prove that it's beneficial. 
I feel like in the past it would be like, well, we don't have any information that says an activated charcoal doesn't work. So let's give it just in case. Yeah, throw it at everybody. Right. And so now I think we have to do a paradigm shift from that to we need to be cautious about activated charcoal. Let's only use it when we're sure that it works. Yep. Now, bromethylene is one of those times where it is recommended. But be aware that even if you're giving it as directed, you could run into problems with the sodium. So we need to monitor the sodium levels uh, in those patients and then be prepared to respond. And I would always, you know, warn, you know, owners that it's that it's a possibility. Um, mm-hmm. If you're not sure, call pet poison control. Take the time to look it up. It takes a little time, but it's worth it. And then I would say if you're just like, we have got to do activated charcoal on this patient, um, if the owners are like real worried about money and they only want to take home, I would only do a single dose now. Uh, at times in my life, I have sent home multiple doses of activated charcoal uh, per, you know, different recommendations and stuff. But I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that now. Mm-hmm. So I would just do one and done and be like, you know, hey, this is the, you know, this is the chance you're taking. OK. And then if I was going to be using multiple doses, I would be very cautious, tiptoe, mm-hmm. monitor electrolytes. Sometimes just being aware of a potential problem can help you avoid major downfalls from it. If you don't know, then you don't know what to be careful for. True that. So I do just want to go over some sources for the episode for today. Uh, We have several things from then, okay? Mm -hmm. But before I read those right off the bat, the case today was a case report called Managing Hypernatremia After Activated Charcoal Administration. The author was A. Ball, and it was published in Veterinary Medicine in 2014. And I will put that information in the show notes. JJ, stop laughing at the author's name. <laughs> Look, I looked at everything so that I didn't have to say A. Ball on the podcast, but I couldn't find what the A stands for. I couldn't find it anywhere. Don't give me this shit. I'm done. Look, so it's over. It's we over. are not clipping that part out, but just know, a ball. If you are listening to this, I'm sorry. that this is JJ's fault. Yes, JJ cannot hear a ball read out loud and not. Like she left again. You're laughing again. <laughs> he keeps saying it. Well, what am I supposed to do? Just not cite the author. Just be like, Shh. <laughs> the author's name is funny, so I'm not gonna, you know, read it your damn self in the show notes. I guess. <laughs> I guess I could say that, JJ. Okay. Hmm, everything's Lord fine. have mercy. All right. <laughs> Encyclopedia entries for bromethylene and anticoagulant rodenticide. Those are two separate chapters. Most recently revised by Jacqueline Brister in 2021. The Encyclopedia entry for hypernatremia. Most recently revised by Carrie Rothrock in 2021. And the Venn Veterinary Drug Handbook entry for activated charcoal. Hmm. Sweet. So... We have just a couple of minutes left, so we'll do the favorite thing that I thought of randomly in the middle of the episode now, but it counts for me and JJ. So JJ was talking about her honeymoon where she went to London. One of the things that JJ did on her honeymoon was go to see the Phantom of the Opera on the London stage where it originated. Yes, I did. Right? Because JJ loves the Phantom of the Opera, as do I. Mm Mm-hmm. So the favorite thing that I thought about that was like my prog- my thought progression was like JJ went to London JJ saw the Phantom <gasps> we saw the Phantom together on Broadway on Broadway so as many of you guys know if you're really into musical theater 
the Phantom did close on Broadway. Sadness. After more than 30 years of running. It should go forever. I know. I was very sad. So um, I don't remember exactly when I found out. There was an article maybe around Christmas time, I feel like, that was was like they're closing in the spring. It was before that. because Before that? I think it was like in October. Maybe around when we saw Stevie or something. Maybe, yeah. We were out to dinner. Yeah, I remember, I remember. we were out to dinner. So JJ with and I were out to dinner, and um, something popped up on my phone. Like, some, I don't know if I got an email or someone texted me or what, but I was like, holy shit, Phantom is closing, like closing on Broadway for good. And um, the New York stage was one of the places that you could see mostly the original blocking and sets. I mean, they had made some changes that were a little frustrating, but like the chandelier still drops and things like that. Whereas the touring company had completely redone many of the sets and the things the chandelier doesn't fall anymore. Like it was very, the touring production, I won't see again unless they restage it because it was thumbs down, not Mm -hmm. in any way up to par. But so it was like, holy crap, I want to see that. And so I told JJ, like, holy crap, it's closing. Like, I'm, I've got to text my family right now because my family will drop everything and go to New York to see it. <laughs> because right before the pandemic, my mom and I had this big New York trip planned just to go see it again because we were nervous. Like, how long could it potentially still run? Yeah. And then New York got closed down like the week before we were supposed to really sit down and plan our trip. And then years have gone by, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, I'm texting my family, like, on the sidewalk outside of the restaurant. And JJ's like, let me text Ben. And, like, (laughs) just to say, and then JJ's like, we're in. Like, so (laughs) JJ and my family and I and Carl and Ben all went to New York and saw the Phantom in person in December. (laughs) And it was amazing. It was 70 degrees, too. Well, Yeah, I mean, it was warm. You know, we had um, that warm snap mm-hmm. right before everything froze at actual Christmas. It was like the first week of December, I feel like, is when we went. Yeah. Um, first second, something like that. So we saw it. It was amazing. It was amazing. We sat very close up because I am all about that life. I like to sit super close. Yeah, well, he was like second or third row. We were it? the third row. And um, I, my mom and I sat... Right where they lift the chandelier <laughs> up. I mean, we could have, like, it. the wind was like, like, yes. you could feel the wind as it picked up. And we could have, like, reached out and touched it, you know? Like, mm-hmm. it was so close, and the actors were so good. Oh, my God, it was so amazing. I and you it. squealed when it came down because it got really <laughs> close to your head. Uh, I probably did, yeah. I'm not you, you, did. you did. You <laughs> did. I, I have, like, a, I have, like, a hee-like yeah. type of laugh when I get really excited. <laughs> When I get really excited, I tend mm-hmm. to maybe like cackle. You, you squee. <laughs> Absolutely. That sounds on brand for me. Yeah. But anyway. I think I was very, um, I was worried because Ben is usually anti anything musical. Not some shit. He's, he's weird. But he was highly impressed with the production. Okay. He loved it. I mean, he loves music. So the fact yeah. that he doesn't like musicals is kind of strange. Yeah, I, it's something from his childhood. He oh, didn't like okay. anything musical from his childhood. So, yeah, I don't know. Fair enough. But he Carl, likes Phantom. Carl had never been to New York and had never seen a musical ever. Never been to a theater. Never seen a play. But I had made him watch... Uh, 
several musicals on video, like Chicago, mm-hmm. Les Mis. What else did I make him watch? Fiddler on the Roof. Um, but he was always, like, attentive and everything like that. Now, Carl does not have emotional reactions to music, which I don't understand. I don't either. When I hear music, um, I have intense emotional reactions, which I know is not everyone's experience. Experience, but I get very affected by it. Mm-hmm. And that's been since I was a kid. Same. Like my mom used to not be able to do certain nursery rhymes or like lullabies because I would freak out about them, like cry. Mm-mm. Anything with a bittersweet like melody, I would flip out as a baby. So anyway, but, um, you know, I'll just get, if you, right now, if someone just started playing, like, the overture, all of my hair will stand on end. Mm-hmm. And I just get goosebumps or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so, like, for me to have this experience when I listen to musicals and when I see art and things like that, and to be partnered with someone who is like, that was enjoyable. And, like, that's <laughs> that's the most, exp- that's it. That I didn't hate it. It was fine. Mm-hmm. But it, it was fine as like the top enjoyment. I'm just like, dude, I don't, I don't like, understand. Don't look at me like I'm extra just because you don't you don't have any feelings. Right. He's very supportive. Like yeah. um uh, so that's why I mostly like I sat with my mom like right here and Carl was on the other side and stuff. And when um because I know I've seen the play so many times that I know what's going to happen next unless they've changed the um, the blocking, you know. Then, uh, but the classic blocking was there. Like every, I just I ha- I was so happy with mm-hmm. it. I was so happy, and I can like anticipate like yes, they're gonna. I don't know turn Carlotta around in the chair now and they do it and I'm like yes I just I want it to be the exact same every time I don't understand mm-hmm. why people don't get that but anyway it was amazing I had such a good time and me too it was great so that is our favorite thing yes we are shared joint a joint favorite thing from December it was amazing <laughs> I, I still, cried like a little bit oh me too I had so many Kleenexes <laughs> And then it was then it was over. I remember sitting there thinking like, I've got to look at the set. I've got to look at every curtain. I've got to look at the ornate um, surround, mm-hmm. you know, that that covers the stage. And I have to look at it, the angel when it comes down. Like everything is gonna g- go. Like it's gonna be like thrown out. I know. And so I was just like, I have to just remember like every part, this phantom experience has to get me through the rest of my adult life, Mm. which is devastating because before it would be like, I only had this phantom experience only needs to get me through the next two to five years (laughs) before I see it again. So now it's like, well, we'll have to go to London to see it before it closes there. Right. Mm-hmm. It's still running in London, I think. Yeah, yeah I think so. Because I think I, I've got some Facebook group that I've been I've followed for years that had Phantom stuff, and the traffic has died down a lot since they I'm closed. Sure. But every now and then I'll see because they changed it to His Majesty's Theater instead of Her Majesty's. Oh, interesting. Yep. Because of the whole switcheroo. Yeah, I gotcha. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I would think that they would keep the name. Yeah, it's a lot smaller of a theater. She was for like a damn hot minute, yeah. you know, like. Well, anyway, now we're off topic. Okay. But anyway, okay. So shared favorite thing. Yes. And then we are going to make it packed then. We're going to go to London 
and see it together on the London stage before it closes. Yes. Okay. Sounds good. I've never been overseas. It's a long ass. I've only ever been to Canada. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. I gotta get my passport updated, JJ. Yep. I bet they don't have as the, the cool deals that they had when we did our honeymoon because really? that was pretty amazing. I and mean, we had a nice hotel. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, ultra, ultra nice, but it was the same level, at least, as the one in New York. Only it was like, it wasn't a name brand hotel. It was something that was local mm-hmm. in the Piccadilly area. But we got the Phantom tickets. We had, um, we went on a bus to Bath. We went to Stonehenge. And then we had a day where we had like a bunch of free passes for like the aquarium the london eye um i think there was a couple other things that we didn't actually go to but we did that and then it covered the hotel and the flights all for about three grand oh shit yeah it was and not it was, gonna be that it was five days we were there it's but three grand but what year was that 20 uh 2006 i have bad news about what three grand in 2006 equals now it might cover the flight there i think it's t- i think three thousand dollars is like ten thousand dollars today i'm pretty sure ouch it's a lot but anyway yeah you know one thing that we will have to do ahead of time is start practicing distance walking like significantly because yeah because my fat ass can't even make it around the block without dying right now (laughs) carl and i went to the museum of natural history and when we were in new york and we were like well it's just two miles from the hotel like we'll just walk two miles up two miles but like it's not that big of a deal that's fine and then by the end of the day we were fucking dying and i was like what about this is so terrible like that wasn't that big of a thing but we didn't know (laughs) That the Museum of Natural History occupies, like, four city blocks or something. (laughs) And so when we looked at our steps for the day, we had walked, like, over 10 miles. Because we walked, started at the bottom, and we went to all the exhibits and stuff. So it wasn't that we walked two miles there, two miles back. We walked two miles there and walked, like, five miles inside of the facility and then walked all the way back. Y'all would have been putting me on a stretcher. (laughs) Yeah, I, I I had a very um, anxious uh, reaction to the flight. Oh, like, yeah. I was. It was not a good. It was not a good time for me for the flight part. Going there, coming back, I was mostly fine. There was a couple of plane noises that freaked me out, but it yeah. was okay coming back. Just the anticipation mainly. But yeah, it was. Uh, it was a bit rough. So I spent that day, most of the day, in in bed. <laughs> Well, recouping less, you know, but then i was nice and fresh and happy and ready to go for the show <laughs> all right jj yep well i think it's time for us to ramp it uh to ramp it up today yep so as always if you have stories cases or anything else you'd like for us to read please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com or you can use the submission form on our website at introvets.com you can find us on social media. We're on, what are we on? Facebook, yeah, Instagram, Instagram, and Tiki Talkie. And it's at Introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Show does. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye-bye.